This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharudin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. Uh, together with Simon Soon, joining me via Skype uh, is Por Hyong Hong. She's a lecturer in the School of Social Sciences from University of Science Malaysia and she's joining us all the way from Penang. Welcome, guys. Hi, hi, Paul. Thanks for, thanks for joining hi, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Maybe, um, you know, to start off with, um, do you want to sort of like introduce yourself, uh, give us a sense of what you do as a way to sort of like get the conversation rolling? Oh, I'm currently a lecturer uh, in USM and teaching in the political science department, but it has always been uh, my interest to study history of medicine, and, uh, particularly in Malaysia, but not Limited to that, I'm also interested in uh, medicine in the region, especially Southeast Asia and East Asia. That's what I've been doing over the past few years. So given that you actually have a historical context to the current pandemic, you know, what do you think is the state that we are currently in at the moment? Is this an exceptional sort of circumstances or are these exceptions normative in the sense that, you know, over the course of human history, we have been visited many times by you know, sudden outbursts of the plague and eventually human will shall triumph and everything is going to go back to normal. Do you anticipate a day where everything will be normal again? For this pandemic, it is a little bit difficult to say because the scale of it is very different from what we had in the last, uh, the nearest pandemic that we have it was the bird flu or so-called avian flu. And then uh, in the same in the 21st century, that was not the first one. The first one, it was it was actually SARS, which also started in China. Things did go back to normal after this outbreak of the last two epidemics. But the skill of the two uh, epidemics that I just mentioned was very different from the current one that we have because there was no lockdown as we are experiencing now. Back then, the response was very different, even though it was a blow to the economy, but then there was no such thing as lockdown. So we don't know what's going to happen after this lockdown. Yeah, mm. whether we are going to going back to the normal life or are things going to change, we don't know mm. we, because we are still dealing with this. Mm. So you have brought up two very recent sort of examples, but as people are sort of like sharing uh, their thoughts online, on the internet, you also find a lot of articles that bring up the 1918 sort of Spanish flu, for example, of how the colonial uh, British colonial authorities used to deal with a pandemic at such a sort of like large scale in the early 20th century. Do you think there's anything to sort of like reflect on, you know, by looking, is there anything worth sort of reflecting on if we were to push the clock back, you know, a hundred years earlier? rather than only sort of, uh, you know, reflect on the recent recent pandemic? I think it was very different back then because, like I mentioned, uh, there was no... Quarantine is a thing that is, uh, it is a recurring theme in the history of medicine, but there was no such thing as quarantine back in the uh, Spanish flu. But this one, now what we have is a quarantine on a very, very large scale. And then there's also a locking down or so-called uh, locking down borders, and which didn't happen in the Spanish flu as well. And also, during the Spanish flu, the pace, the intensity of globalization, globalization is, was very different from what we have today. Because today, mm. a lot of trade, 
a lot of economic commercial activities. They are actually uh, activities. Uh, they are not local activities, but rather, uh, you know, very globalizing. And now this has to stop because of the lockdown. And this is the thing that was very different from the Spanish flu. Okay. What are the implications, though? I mean, for some of us, there are also people who say that maybe slowing down is a good thing and uh, that it's a time to take stock on what we've been sort of like doing all these while and perhaps we're going at such a rapid and such an intensified pace that humans at some point actually need to sort of like slow down and, and go back to a sort of much more human pace of how we sort of like live our life. Do you see that as a sort of valid way of thinking of dealing with, you know, the current uh, epidemic? I think that's an interesting topic to pick up from this pandemic because people are really coming from very different perspectives regarding this thing about slowing down, pace of life slowing down even the economy because this locking down actually influenced people differently because uh, there, there are people who are more privileged who have a secure job they can work from home uh, mm-hmm. but then there are also people you know who are quite marginalized who are at the front line they have to continue to carry on with their job every day uh, such as you know cleaners sweepers they have to uh, you know clean up the streets and then even our dump site they have to clean it up and then they're exposed to all these risks and including some of the food delivery workers, like, you know, grab food workers, food panda workers, you know, they are actually exposed to all this. So slowing down life, it's probably only for people who are who are very privileged, but then not to all these frontline workers. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, uh, yeah, the, the blow on economy, the effect, the impact of it could be very different for different group of people. So it depends on which group of people we are talking about, yeah. So it's not just even about the risk of exposure, right? Uh, Those who actually lead more sort of precarious lives, their income is basically, uh, it's on a sort of a casual basis. So they actually need to work in order to get paid. And therefore, if there are no jobs. Yes, exactly. uh, Especially those who are on daily wage, they kind of like lose their job overnight when MCO was announced because all businesses had to stop for, uh, at the beginning it was just two weeks, but then extended to four weeks. We don't know whether it's going to be extended for another two weeks to six weeks or not. And these are the group of people who are immediately negatively affected by all this locking down and MCO. Mm. Um, one interesting aspect that I'm also quite, uh, I guess, uh, fascinated by is how social we are, right, as human beings. And I think it's it's difficult for us to cope with being in isolation. I guess, of course, there is that economic effect to that as well. But uh, I guess socially, uh, it's also quite difficult for people, whether privileged or not, to sort of like cope with with having to be away from communities, right? Oh yeah, it's more like sacrificing our social life in order to, to use. Recently, there's this Italian philosopher. Uh, his name is uh, Giorgio Agamben. He's come up with this idea of so-called bare life. What he calls as bare life is the biological life of a person. You know, we are like sacrificing our social life in order to salvage our biological life. And then uh, this, is, this sacrifice actually 
have like reduced human beings into biological beings. And this is something that, but of course, maybe we can talk about that later, about um, this debate now ongoing in Europe, the idea that Agamben brought up about bear life, because he's actually against the idea of locking down, the practice of locking down. For him, humans should not give up social life and reduce themselves into biological beings. But then uh, the critics say that, no, we are sacrificing our social life so that we can have it back later because without a biological life, there is no social life to begin with. And of course, mm. yeah, isolation is something very, very depressing for a lot of people, especially for people who are very athletic, who are very extrovert. It's like they have to lock themselves up, you know, for at least four to six weeks. We don't know how long. And then uh, that's posing a lot of mental health problems. And also, we know that home or, or home is not always a safe place to everyone because some home is they have the problem of domestic violence, things like that. And then home could be dangerous for certain people. But then everyone is forced to stay home now at the moment. Yeah. But given in this day and age, we have uh, the amazing ability to sort of connect on so many different levels through the internet. Uh, are there ways that people are being adaptive in carving out a kind of like pocket space for sociality to allow for social sort of like moments that to allow for connectivity, even if they're sort of like, you know, stuck in their, you know, they're, they're locked in their own little room and Oh, they're hiding under their blanket or, or, or you know, in, in the most sort of like intense moment of isolation, are there ways in which people are connecting also using the yes, technology? I can, see that, I can see that there are a lot of libraries out there. Uh, you know, some of the most, the libraries with the, with the richest collections in the world, they're opening up their collection, especially their e-books. Uh, for reading and and we can also see that there are museums also okay. opening up their online museum and then these are the chances where uh, you know you have more time to your own then you can make use of it to you know to read all these books or visit all these online museums which was previously like paywalled but now they are open up for free access and that's the thing that we are connecting to things that we didn't have time for. Uh, but then at this moment of MCO, we actually have more time to read and to ponder about a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah, I also wonder whether that also sort of like opens up a different kind of, uh, I guess, avenues for people who are previously not self-reflective, right? I guess I've heard a lot of, you know, some of my friends said that they've been thinking about life a lot more now that they've been forced to be confined in their uh, own homes, right? So uh, you talk about mental health just now, and I guess to a certain extent being isolated away from society and away from the uh, from the public life, I guess to a certain extent sort of like also allows you to be a bit more reflective. And I, I wonder whether people out there who are not that familiar with the process might find it I don't know. I wouldn't say disturbing, but it can be a new sensation. It can be a new, I guess, feeling that might be good or might be bad, right? Yeah, I think so. Because now people are paying more attention to the place they call home. They, they realize that, oh, okay, these are the books I used to have there, but I, I didn't really pay good attention to it. Now that I have more time, maybe I can read up, you know, or whatever, or the plants they have in their in their backyard or front yard that they didn't really pay close attention to. Now they have more time to, you know, have time for all these things. 
Yeah, and it's a good time really for reflection. Unless I know that some people they are so terrified by this COVID-19 that they couldn't really focus on reading, but rather spend a lot of time online to follow up the latest uh, information, the latest uh, you know the, the latest statistics of death cases and things like that. And therefore, these people it could be a very stressful process. Right. But what you have just suggested are people who are at least sort of like, you know, struggling with themselves on some level, right? Uh, in both your examples, whether the person is, you know, going online to actually read to find out more about the current situation in order to sort of like switch his or her fear or that they are, you know, uh, reading or rereading books that uh, of their childhood in order to sort of like reflect on their lives. These are very internal yeah. sort of like process. But I can also imagine there might be another group of people who still find ways to be social, right? You hear people using yeah. Zoom or Hangouts or, or just sort of like calling each other on, I guess, on your telephone and, uh, and still able to sort of like create all these sort of like social moments adapted to the current yeah. situation. I can already I mean, see that some of my friends, they are taking this opportunity to learn how to use like uh, some of the online meeting software, like whatever, uh, like Zoom or, or even Skype, you know, using this software actually to communicate with people that, uh, you know, because you're using this software, you, you don't have to spend a single cent, but you can actually meet with a lot of great people that you would like to meet including inviting scholars from abroad and then to share their ideas, you know, their whatever things that they have been doing, you know, and these are the things that this really opens up uh, more windows for for sharing and for exchange. Yeah. You think this is going to change the way we, you know, uh, socialize or even sort of like have a conversation with one another in the future, given that it's going to last for a while? And we might be sort of like used to the situation that uh, it might change the way we interact with one another. I'm thinking, my, for example, like teaching, right? Uh, even on a level of teaching in the university, uh, a lot of classrooms are now online. And in fact, there are a lot of sort of even feedback that actually this kind of like online interface, it's much more, it's a much more conducive sort of like environment for learning. And if, if we were to sort of like, you know, return to normal again, would the way in which we sort of like, you know, conduct teaching change? I think different people probably take it very differently because from what I see uh, on, my, on my social media, I can see that some people really enjoyed it because they get to like design the lecture in a very different way because now it's virtual space and they are they're enjoying it. They are playing with different interactive uh, what they call the, the interactive activities, and then uh, but there are there are some people who don't really enjoy it. They think that no, this is not, this is very different from face to face lecture because you cannot really know the response of your students. You don't know whether they are paying attention or no, whether they understand or no, because it's very difficult to like to notice a raise of hand or even uh, to notice the, the expression of, of your of your students. Yeah. But it does open up the space for more conversations in the sense that you can invite more people because it's not limited to face-to-face. Face-to-face, you have to take into account of, you know, how to bring one person from one place to another place so that you can meet face-to-face. But then 
this virtual meeting, you don't have to worry about that. You can just reach out to anyone that you like to have a conversation with, so long that that person has access to internet and, and, and know how to use the apps. Yeah, but this actually is also a challenge for some people uh, when we talk about um, online teaching uh, because some students from a more underprivileged family mm. or, or, or in a more rural area, they have no access to internet uh, facilities. So I was told by my university, for example, there are at least 12% of the student population that does not have proper internet facilities in order for them to participate fully in sort of the online learning environment. And that's why the university, yeah. the public universities, is still sort of like trying to sort of find ways and around or around this problem. But it can be pre-recorded. You can you can conduct a real-time online lecture and then record it and then for the use uh, use of uh, students who, who cannot have immediate access but they can access it later when when they finally have internet mm. they cannot participate for sure they cannot participate in the real-time online lecture but they can download it afterwards so in that sense it's not a problem except that they cannot have interaction with the lecturer what you have just highlighted is also how crucial maybe interaction is, right, as a sort of component to learning. Uh, we learn primarily to talking to people by having a conversation with another person. We find ourselves through that process. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, that's what online lecture cannot really deliver. You know, the, the kind of interaction, face-to-face -face interaction uh, is very different. Uh, when you do it online and you do it face-to-face. -face. All right. That was Por Hyung Hong, a lecturer in the School of Social Sciences from University of Science Malaysia, helping us make sense of the current COVID-19 pandemic that we're currently facing. This is Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin and Simon Soon. We're going for a short break. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharuddin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest, Por Hyung Hong, a lecturer in the School of Social Sciences from University of Science Malaysia. So, um, I would like yeah. to bring up a point that I think was discussed or mentioned earlier about how this also sort of like brings uh, life to a slower pace, right? And it's, it's, as if, it's as if we've been so used to a fast-paced life that uh, life in the MCO feels much slower. And I guess some people have said that it is a much-needed break from the hustle and bustle of life that we are sort of familiar with, especially if you live in the urban areas, right? Uh, so is this something that I guess is uniquely a modern problem? Uh, because I, I guess back then, at least the assumption was that life wasn't as as busy. So so is this something that is much needed in our lives for us to sort of like, I guess, maybe, you know, take a break and, you know, move at a slower, much slower pace? And to a certain extent, maybe MCO is somehow or rather helping that? Yeah, I think for urban dwellers, probably it's really a slowing down of things. But then for people who are already... For example, freelancer, probably it doesn't make much difference because they have been working from home even before the MCOs. But then for people who have to commute daily, let's say, you know, an hour each way, and with the MCO, they actually can save a lot of time. But then for people who have kids, that would be very different. Okay? They probably need to, they, they have more to do at home than they work in the office because if they work in the office, 
they probably send away their, their kids in nursery or, or, or school, but now all the schools are closed. And, and for these people, they're actually working doubly at home. Yeah. So how prepared are we to sort of like face all these sort of huge life decisions and, uh, and problems? Are there policies sort of in place or interesting sort of like policies, company policies or corporate policies or institutional policies that's being sort of like rolled out that you think are actually help, helping to solve some of these issues or are, are we sort of like thrown in the deep end and that we're just sort of like figuring out on our own? Some, I think uh, some company they are trying to train their probably their their uh, employees to use all these online meeting materials, and is actually forcing them to kind of like pick up more technology, especially for the higher education sector. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, over the past decade, a lot of public universities have been trying to push for e-learning or more online teaching or making use of internet technology to conduct courses, but then it, it didn't really work well until this outbreak. So it's very interesting that this outbreak actually pushes a lot of teachers and lecturers to pick up the skills, which before the MCO, they were reluctant to do. They were so much reluctant to do, but then now they have to. Yeah. But it also shows, just to go back a little bit to the, to the thing that we just mentioned about uh, not not all students have access to internet and this COVID-19 because of the uh, pushing for the entire trend pushing for online teaching it actually reveals that we don't really have a very good uh, or, or very uh, well internet infrastructure Wi-Fi infrastructure for everyone urban right. dwellers they, right. they yeah it's actually another issue of inequality you know Mm. So it doesn't become that apparent until, you know, when a catastrophe like this uh, happens. Yeah. Then how unequal society is when it comes to yes. them yeah. to access technology that would help them get on with their lives. Is it? Yeah. Are there uh, uh, different ways in which people are trying to address this inequality, whether from, you know, on a governmental level or communities are sort of like self-organizing and trying to sort of like find ways to build up a new kind of like uh, a sense of community out of this crisis. In terms of community self-organization, uh, I think Malaysia has a very good, very active civil society. They, they organize themselves to fit uh, the needy, especially homeless people or even urban poor people. But then in terms of uh, Wi-Fi access or internet access, that would really need state intervention, you know, state investment to upgrade internet facility in more remote areas. At the moment, we only have some private companies trying to offer some free package, but we don't know what kind of agenda they have behind all these offers. Uh, at the moment, it seems okay, but we don't know un until you know the path of this uh, when, when we pass get past this MCO. Yeah. Where where does the skepticism come from? Just corporations in general, or your innate skepticism towards corporation, or how, why why are you cynical that they're offering you know free internet service to to the poor or the sort of like needy at this point in time? Do you see this as primarily a marketing strategy? 
because we don't know whether uh, when they offer all this free Wi-Fi package, uh, but then uh, are they also trying to secure some deal with the government at the moment or not, like grant-seeking or, or, or not? We don't know. But then at the same time, you know, they use this as an opportunity to push, kind of polish their brand, their corporate mm. image. That's for sure. But at the end right. of the day, whether they, they try to strike a deal with the government or not, these are the things that, that is not really transparent. We don't know. Mm. Yeah, that's why right. I'm a bit skeptical about it. I'm more inclined to see... Uh, I hope that the government would really, if, if the government is trying to push for this, you know, more equal like access to internet technology, then it should commit itself to bring more facilities, the infrastructure to these places that need all these facilities, but yet at the moment underserved. Mm. So given that we all feel so sort of atomized now, that on many levels we also feel a bit helpless, what can we actually sort of like do at this sort of like, you know, point in time uh, other than dealing with our own feelings, uh, which I think is important kind of emotional work that all of us need to go through. How, how do we cope? Well, I, I, I see that there are a lot of fundraising activities and uh, people are mobilizing their own network to get more food or goods for the needy people. And then these are the, these are the things that we can see that it's not true that we are really sacrificing all our social lives. We are actually trying to connect to each other in a different way. And I also noticed one very interesting thing. You can see that uh, the Oromasli, they are not in the, uh, what do you call that, uh, in, in this entire pandemic, they seem, their lives seem to be like, neglected by the public health because they are living really quite remote. But then we see that there are some NGOs and activists, even some of the activists, they are, they are actually organically, they organize themselves and trying to block this disease. And these are the things that I would call, you know, public health or biopolitics from below. Because in the past, we tend to think that, okay, we need the state for help. Public health is something, you know, the state trying to control the life of the public, you know, gaining information so that they can produce uh, productive citizens, for the economy of the country. But then there can also be a different way of seeing this. You, you see that people are organizing themselves to safeguard their own health. They are not, it's not something that comes from the above to try to take control of people's lives, but people try to take control of their own uh, health. Yeah, this is something very interesting. Right. Uh, what, what, what does it take to sort of like do that? Do you need to sort of like cooperate with uh, you know, each other, do you cooperate with the state? Do you cooperate with corporations? Or at what point do you sort of uh, maintain some measure of sort of autonomy? And to what extent are you, you know, willing to sort of like, you know, reach out across different communities or, you know, different bodies in order to sort of build something together? Usually it is people who are in the uh, who are in employment, full employment, they are more subject to so-called surveillance, public health surveillance, whether the surveillance comes from the state or surveillance comes from uh, your employer or the capitalist. Okay, but then for people who, who don't have a full-time employment, they are actually very marginalized. What they are suffering is not 
you know, like intervention of the state or intervention of a capitalist system, but rather they, they don't really have access to public health. So the issue is that these two groups of people are facing are very different. People who are employed and people who have been doing all kinds of odd, odd jobs or on daily wage. So they are facing very different realities. And then what we see that is that the Orang Asli, even though they are very marginalized from the public health healthcare system, but then they also they, they, they try to organize themselves as well, even without uh, much resources from the government. So the government yeah. So in trying to organize yourself, in trying to organize a community, will you reach out and work with the state? Um, it depends on uh, their relations and trust, their relations with the state, and that probably depends on different communities. Uh, probably have very different memories of their relations with the government, the state. So that depends on 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 the community as well, how much trust they have in the government in the state. Okay, so I guess we have to end the conversation soon. Uh, but before we go, uh, I would like to just ask you one more thing. Uh, David talks about how we are heading to a new normal, right? Uh, and, and I guess, um, and whether we are even in a new normal now, but if we were to head into a new normal, do you think that we are ready to face uh, some of the things that we have to sort of adjust and, and change, I guess? Do you think we as a society are ready to make changes to the way we live, whether socially, uh, whether uh, spiritually, whether mentally, physically and whatnot, to be able to adapt to, quote-unquote, a new normal if we were to actually head to to something that is considered new and different after this? I think the problem is we don't really even know what this new normal is. Keeping social distance could probably last for at least six months. But then after that, I think uh, is... More importantly is how well people are coping with all this, especially for people who lost their jobs, who lost their income. That's going to be very, very stressful life for these people. But then uh, not just people who are really, you know, in the bottom uh, of the society. What I mean bottom is, uh, you know, people who don't have secure income and secure job. But also in the middle, you you can see that there are a lot of people uh, who are just small, medium businesses. They are so negatively affected by this MCO as well in the sense that they have to stop their businesses and then and at the same time, they probably have to, I don't know whether they have to pay, continue to pay salary to, to their employees or not. And, and But then uh, there's no business, no income at all for this. And then if this, there, there is a collapse of, a collapse of these small, medium um, businesses, it's going to create another wave of unemployment or joblessness. Uh, which could be, I don't know, which can be very, very, very um, scary thing for us to face. Yeah. Okay, so you just heard from Por Hyung Hong, a lecturer in the School of Social Sciences from University of Science Malaysia. She's joined by Simon Soon and we've been trying to make sense of the current pandemic we're facing and how it affects our lives. Share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. Don't forget to also download the BFM app which you can get on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Uh, thanks once again, uh, Po and Simon. Thank you, Hanif and Soon. I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Remember to stay at home, practice social distancing and stay safe. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.